Hello, and welcome to This is Purdue, the official podcast for Purdue University. Our conversations and stories feature Boilermaker students, faculty, and alumni taking small steps toward their giant leaps and inspiring others to do the same. Purdue University has a rich history made possible by the Morrill Land-Grant Act of 1862. Signed into law by President Abraham Lincoln, this significant piece of legislation led to the founding of Purdue to provide instruction in agriculture, the mechanic arts, and other professions. In this podcast segment, historians reflect on the university's beginnings that led to Purdue becoming known worldwide for its groundbreaking innovation and academic excellence. Was there ever better spent money by the federal government? It was such an experiment, and it was such a gamble. The ideals were there, but nothing else. When you look at Purdue today and consider its modest beginnings, you can't help but feel like this is a promise fulfilled. middle of the 19th century, of course, the 800-pound gorilla in the room was the coming of the Civil War. A lot of the war was really about what kind of a nation America wanted to be. This is a period of second industrial revolution, and the great boom is the railroad boom, and we're moving west. The one thing the railroad's going to do is it's going to open up the west. People were moving from rural areas to cities to work in factories. There was an enormous need for bridges, for roads, for factories. Just as a matter of economic development, Americans were looking for an educational system that would prepare the leaders and the workers in that new industrial system. But there was absolutely no standardization of education. Most colleges were affiliated, tied to one religious denomination or another. At that time, it was the wealthy and the elite who went to college. Kids did not grow up with the expectation that they would go to college. And we think of someone like Abraham Lincoln, who studied law with a lawyer. I mean, he didn't go to a law school and get certified as a lawyer the way one would do that today. When I think of Morrell, you know, I think of a guy with with some vision. Morrell was a senator from Vermont. He was part of the Whig Party. Those who adhered to the Whigs tended to believe that government had an important role to play. And so they were looking for programs that would contribute to the common good. Purdue was created by one of the most important pieces of legislation impacting education in all of our history, the Morrell Act. The idea of the Morrell Act is going to bring the government into this, and the government's going to get into the education business. And the reason they wanted to do it, in large extent, was to help extend the ideals of education to a wider class of people. But with the proviso that these institutions of higher learning would focus on agricultural science and the mechanical arts. If the government's in the education business, they want to see a practical result coming out of the education. In 1862, Abraham Lincoln signed the Morrell Land-Grant Act. They're called land-grant universities because states sold public land to raise money to start the universities. In the Big Ten, 10 of the 14 schools are land-grant universities. 
Indiana got about $240,000 for the land that they sold out west. The whole idea of the land-grant institution was not that the federal government was going to give you all your money. States were required to do the buildings and the infrastructure. They couldn't use that land-grant money for that. Just so happened in the early 1860s, Indiana economy was not booming. Because Indiana, with its canal fever, had gone broke. They were all but bankrupt. They were trying to pay back the debts. They just didn't have the money to build the college. In the beginning of 1869, the governor of Indiana, Conrad Baker, went before the Indiana legislature and said, we cannot afford this university. We need another $240,000 in addition to what we have to open the doors. That created a bidding war to where the university was going to be located. Indiana University, of course, in Bloomington thought, well, it should just be here. We already exist. We can add the necessary courses of study. This is where John Perdue will step up and say, look, if you build it where I want it built, if it's named after me, I'll kick in $150,000, several million dollars by today's standards. Unlike the vast majority of land-grant universities, Purdue stands out as bearing the name of one of the important contributors to its founding, John Purdue. John Purdue was born in 1802 on Halloween, very poor family. And John Purdue struck out on his own as a young man in Ohio, south of Columbus. John Purdue saw how successful the canals were to the communities that went through. And he knew the Wabash and Erie Canal was going to go through Lafayette. He decided to relocate in the late 1830s to Lafayette. Lafayette was an interesting city. It was a great, burly, kind of western town. But it was going to become very prosperous very quickly. And he got in the ground floor, and he became very wealthy. It was a really booming community. So it was a place with promise. And I think that's what John Perdue saw when he first came. And when he made the pitch for this being the ideal location for the land-grant school, other people could see that too. Purdue was officially established on May 6, 1869. Doesn't open its doors till 1874. There were questions whether the doors were going to be open. And especially when it was decided to site it on the west bank of the river, people talked about it as a white elephant. There was nothing here. On the west side of the Wabash River at that time was a little town of Chauncey. It was only just, you know, less than 100 homes. It was very small. Everything that was around here was in Lafayette, and it was centered on the canal and then the railroad and the transportation systems over there, and this seemed like such folly. They located where they did because that's where John Perdue was able to get the land very inexpensively. Remember, he said he would provide the state with 100 acres. In those early years, in inventing a university, the Board of Trustees had a huge challenge. None of these people were educators, not one of them. These are local businessmen. They're local politicos. These aren't people that come from a university environment. They hadn't founded other universities. And of course, in the midst of all of this, you have John Perdue, who wanted to be a committee of one directing the traffic on all those decisions. John Perdue was a 19th century businessman. He did not have a board of directors. He had himself. He was in charge. And so there's a lot of debates, there's give and take, there's trying to figure out how we do this, where are buildings supposed to go, what does the faculty look like? The board really had a terrible time to figure all of this out. I won't say the miracle is that we opened the doors up, but it's a singular achievement that we finally do. They opened the doors in the fall of 1874, September of 1874. Perhaps 
The seven faculty members were smiling, greeting their new class. They expected a large, large number of students to show up. About 39 did. That was a bit disappointing. And even more disappointing is once they were tested, only 13 were really qualified to go to a university. Well, they needed the other students, so they put them into what they called an academy or preparatory school. And that speaks, I think, to the, the condition of education in not just the state of Indiana, really pretty much in the whole United States. The campus at that time was just a couple of buildings. They had a what they call a boarding house, which is where the, the faculty and their wives and children all lived. They had a classroom building, they had a workshop, they had a residence hall for male students, and they had a one-story wooden armory. The costs of going to Purdue in the early years were minimal. There was no tuition, but they did have fees they had to pay, and that totaled to about $20 for the year. In the early years of Purdue, there was, there was a considerable amount of skepticism about what this land-grant institution would be about. It's hard to imagine what the folks in Lafayette, which was the going concern, thought about this little enterprise on the other side of the river. There were times when people were not sure if the university was going to really be able to stay in existence and to flourish. But I think there was generally enough of a sense across the state that such education was needed and such good people were coming out of Purdue University in the 1880s and 1890s that it was an enterprise worth giving a chance. of the Morrill Act imagined in 1862 that we can educate the sons and daughters of the farmers and the middle class. I mean, look at what came out of this piece of legislation. Purdue University, Wisconsin, Michigan State, Ohio State, and on and on. Some of the greatest, largest state universities in America, some of the best universities in the world. This is a world-class university that not only fulfilled the expectations of the founders of the land grant, but took us to heights that they never imagined. John Wooden was named a three-time consensus All-American player and the National Player of the Year in 1932 as a Boilermaker. Finding sports memorabilia from that time period is extremely rare. And when John Wooden's 1930s jersey resurfaced in 2018, a popular alumnus made sure it would find a home at Purdue. I'm fully confident uh, that it was uh, uh, worn by John Wooden uh, in the 1930s. It's a piece of history. It's priceless. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's priceless. In the college basketball circles, John Wood's most known as being the 10-time national champion coach uh, of UCLA. But for Purdue fans and, and uh, fans of the Midwest, uh, he's a three-time All-American from Purdue, the 1932 National Player of the Year. He was built pretty good. He played a hardcore defense, and but his handling, his ball skills, and stuff were, you know, you can see that on tape was pretty amazing. Obviously, the 1930s was a different, uh, very different era of, of basketball. Uh, defense uh, was stressed a lot more than offense. Uh, John Wooden was a, 
a feisty guard, uh, as legend has it, uh, um, a good shooter, um, and just a very knowledgeable uh, player. The story is that uh, John Wooden uh, gave the jersey to a gentleman by the name of Frank Neff. Uh, the two were classmates uh, at Purdue. Uh, Frank Neff gave it to his grandson, John, uh, who had it in his house uh, for many years, uh, just uh, stowed away uh, safely uh, in, a, in a box. The stuff from the 20s and 30s is really rare, very rare, and college basketball for sure. And some with Johnny Wooden and being a jersey that he wore, I mean, it's just unbelievable. So many jerseys and other pieces of equipment uh, from that time frame, really up uh, into the 70s, uh, were, were refurbished, reused, uh, sent down to the junior varsity, maybe the freshman team. I'd call it decent shape. I mean, it's got a few moth holes that you'd expect. Uh, one of the letters of Purdue uh, um, is not still fully sewn on. The other ones are. The numbers, uh, the number 13 is very much intact uh, on the back. Uh, something from, from the 1930s, uh, I think is pretty phenomenal. Orlando and I are both uh, sports memorabilia uh, collectors. And uh, when the jersey uh, uh, came on auction, and certainly something that both of us uh, thought would be great uh, to have at Purdue, if not in our own collections. I went online and saw it online. That's how I started to see the, you know, started to see it the first part. So I got to read the descriptions and, the, you know, all the information about it. And because the estimate was like between ten and ten and thirty thousand dollars, I thought I really want to win this to put at Bruno's. You know, we got like 10, 12 days before the auction closes, and it's already at thirty-nine thousand. I'm thinking I got to find somebody that's got some deeper pockets. First thing I thought of was. Uh, Text your buddy Drew, our buddy Drew, and, and see if he'd be interested in, in having it for his collection. And a lot of people don't realize that, uh, that Drew, Drew Brees is a big Johnny Wooden fan and idolizes him. Orlando made that connection and, and Drew uh, didn't hesitate. I get a response back from Drew and, and there's one word that goes, wow. He goes, we got to get this. And I thought, really thought we could get it for around 70, 70, 80,000. Drew said, "Well, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm in. I'm into 100. I'm, I'm in for 100,000. And when I kicked the 100,000 dollar bid, it went automatically went to 150. So we've got a little competition going. At that point in time, he says, do whatever you gotta do to get it. And we never discussed a final number. Uh, when all was said and done, the, the final price, including all the various fees that go with auctions, it was 264,000 dollars, and just shows." Uh, not only his generosity, but his love for, for his alma mater and, and the fact that you know, he wanted to have this uh, uh, and, and loan it to Purdue uh, just speaks to all the good things that uh, Drew epitomizes. We had a John Purdue Club event uh, down in Jeffersonville, Indiana, um, where the plan was to unveil the jersey and Drew was going to actually come in uh, for that uh, event. Uh, I guess the one unfortunate uh, part of the story throughout all the great things that the story is is Drew's uh, flight uh, was canceled due to weather, so he couldn't be there in person. But Drew, uh, ever thoughtful and, and always wanting to not disappoint, uh, uh, did a quick video. So tonight, in front of all of you, we are making the big announcement. We are making the big reveal. Here is John Wooden's original jersey that will reside in the halls of Mackey Arena forever. We consulted with a number of folks uh, who have done you know, museums and memorabilia displays uh, and finally settle on a company out of Kentucky that uh, obviously it's quite an investment uh, that Drew made and, and uh, we, you know, pledged to take care of it. It's in Mac Arena on the concourse. Um, we also have a letter sweater uh, from John Wooden that he wore that his family uh, gave the university uh, upon uh, his passing.
Oh, I think Purdue did a great job helping with this display they put out. We, we decided to highlight the National Players of the Year, and we have, we've had three. We've got John Wooden, we've got Glenn Robinson, and then Stephanie White. So we made a display with all three of them. You know, I think the first thing that stands out is you compare it with uh, not only Glenn Robinson's jersey, but Stephanie White's jersey. Just the, the material is so different, the size is so different. Uh, uh, John Wooden was not a, not a large man by any stretch uh, when you compare him with, with Glenn or even Stephanie. I think it's the greatest piece of, of memorabilia that we've got on display or in our archives. To have something like this, one of the all-time you know, great basketball icons, is just phenomenal. What's better, the fact that we have it or the fact that Drew Brees loaned it to us? I mean, they're equally awesome. Through the generosity of Drew Brees, the legacy of one of the most revered players and coaches in the history of sports will live on in Mackey Arena for years to come. Thanks for listening to This is Purdue. For more information on this episode, visit our website at purdue.edu slash podcast. There, you can route to your favorite podcast app to subscribe and leave a review. As always, boiler up. <laughs>